Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, arts, activism, culture and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non-conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non-conforming presenters, producers and musicians dismantling the patriarchy. Taking collective action and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers, food and friends. Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID safe event. So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022. And it's just turned four o'clock on Tuesday, the 1st of March. So a warm welcome to Autumn with Jen Bartlett. There won't be the usual Tuesday home time with me next Tuesday, as the 8th of March is International Women's Day. I'll be presenting the first hour and other women the time between five and six. And of course, no Mr Kevin Healy. He can have another holiday. But for today, I'll be speaking with Kamal Fidel, the Polisario Front representative of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic, about the situation in occupied Western Sahara, occupied by Morocco, and his recent visit to the refugee camps in Algeria. And together with celebrations of the 46th anniversary of the Sahrawi Republic on 27th of February, 1976. There are elections coming up in a number of countries in the coming months and it's on in the Philippines and due on the 9th of May where Bongbong Marcos, the son of the ex-dictator Ferdinand Marcos and Sarah Duterte, the daughter of President Duterte, are running mates for that election. But there are plenty of others determined to claw their way to the top as well. Human rights activist Peter Murphy will also talk about those on the left determined to make their mark. Dr Tim Anderson recently spent a week in Venezuela, so we'll hear his views on the situation there. Also the coverage of Russia and the Ukraine. How much of what the US-dominated media is in fact true? And how difficult is it to get the real truth? And have you noticed that any footage you see about Ukraine and Russia? All the snow has disappeared. Maybe it's just got really warm in the last week or so. But we have Mr Kevin Healy for this week and we'll see what sort of a week he's had. 
A weak Jane listener when, amid COVID and World War III, there was just so much good news, exciting news, as the biannual reporting season saw record profits just everywhere. As record profits for fossils in particular had the great resource giants' coppers overflowing, shareholders dancing in the streets. White Heavenly Money Coal, for instance, announcing a 460% profit increase. Real figure. Wood Boss's side tripling its profit to nearly $2 billion. And most exciting of all, Rio Tato the Planet, a $30 billion profit, the highest ever in Trublawazi corporate history. A record. This shows how selfish those indigenous people are for complaining about a little explosion without which our profit could have been as low as, as $29 billion, and achieving this wonderful record balances our genuine sorrow at blowing up their old useless stuff that they never used anyway. And no need to mention the obvious bottom line benefits of workplace bullying, sexual harassment and lack safety. But unfortunately, our excitement at these records that are so good for all of us was countered by a major, major blow to the economy. For the quarter, wages went up a stratospheric 0.7%, showing the detrimental impact the greed of lazy avaricious workers is having on the economy, without which those record profits could have been even more record, and that wealth would have by now been trickling down to all of us, that spray of yellow liquid we all appreciate. It shows mining billionaire Charles Bloated expressed his exasperation how those greedy workers, mindless workers, egged on by evil union, mindless workers, mind you, for whom we care so much about, fail to reciprocate our care and think only of themselves, their selfish selves. On those like Charles who think only of the common good, notice the Victorian Chamber of Prophet Supremo, given the events of the week, the appropriately named Paul Guerra, Guerra presumably for war on worker greed, is talking of a vision for the greatest little economic order of them all, informing us COVID highlighted inequalities in our society. Well, not exactly, Paul. Some of us had a, a bit of an idea pre-COVID, although I rather suspect Paul figured the caring employers were suffering the inequality. Vulnerability is in our economy. For instance, he mused, it exposed the negative impact on the economy of caring employers having to pay their own workers and the positive impact of the public purse meeting those crippling costs. Good point, that good point. Paul is also certain to turn his attention to and be just as concerned about those Victorian caring employers who have most definitely not been paying their workers super entitlements to the tune of a mere seven or so billion, a, a little inadvertent oversight. Worry for the poor dears, though. The tax department records it's going to crack down on the family trusts of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, which it claims, and this is so ludicrous, are used to evade taxes. Uh, sorry, sorry, meet their legal tax obligations, prompting tax accountants to claim this will ring alarm bells for beneficiaries of thousands of trusts. Don't our hearts have to go out to them for the stress this will put them through? One tax accountant told us the extent of the alarm bells. There's no doubt they will be forced to spend more of their not-so-hard-earned on us to ensure they continue to meet their legal tax obligations. Uh, but, but most of them pay nothing. 
and that is not without cost. They pay us generously to ensure they do meet that legal tax obligation. Uh, well, legal non-tax obligation. You're being semantic. Oh, sorry, sorry again. On Guerra and those events of the week, the US of the UN of the US of the world's NATO bit of the US of world was forced to react to evil Russia being a bit upset about US of NATO bit train killers on various parts of its borders by putting lots more US of NATO bit train killers on various parts of its borders and then was forced to impose sanctions on evil Russia when evil Russia got a bit more upset. And our big supremo scuttle them more lash son, a.k.a. scummo, echoed the US OBS alarm at people who would bully other countries and was outraged that evil China had not also echoed the US of and expressed its disgust at people bullying other countries. And then Vlad put in the train killers, put in the train killers. And we saw shots of bombs flashing, exploding on urban skylines, Evil, evil bombs, just like the shots of bombs flashing, exploding in Gaza. Good, good, liberty, freedom and democracy bombs. And bombs flashing, exploding in Baghdad. Good, good, liberty, and Syria. Well, in Syria, they were good or evil, depending on who did it. And numerous other examples of mostly good, good, liberty, freedom and democracy bombs flashing, exploding. And I thought... I'm not sure the dead and the injured and the displaced would give a stuff whether the bomb is good or evil. And I sat down and studied the form guide and thought Joe Biden capital and his little acolyte scummo versus Vlad put in the train killers. <laughs> Who do we barrack for? Meanwhile, the merchants of death are just barracking and rubbing their hands together. Also barracking and hoping it can rub its hands together, more good news from the Slaughter Woodside with, boss, water, uh, Woodside with Bosses has not only announced record profits, but if the war chokes energy supplies in Europe, Woodside with Bosses could snare a multi-billion dollar windfall. Wonderful news. We'll all be better off. Displaying its renowned balance in these matters, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin has taken to headline the plutocratic dictator as Mad Vlad and Vlad the Invader. Nothing but objective. Objective ad in a local rag down the surf coast where I spent a few days for a mob called Lifestyle Communities vlogging Strike While It's Hot with 20,000 Reasons to Downsize This Year. Live out in that ever-expanding development between Geelong and Torquay doing wonders for the environment, miles from minor lifestyle inputs like services. But the bit that got me, no stamp duty, no council rates, and the most important lifestyle advantage of all, no renters next door. Now, we know how unsocial and antisocial and destructive of property values public housing renters next door are, but no renters, renters generally, obviously an inferior race who must be banished to, well, anywhere but next door. And I know we can be critical at times of Scummo displaying our biases, but this week we had to thank his God that he is so vigilant, so wise, so logical, able to advise us not only about World War III, but about catastrophic dangers close to home as Sydney's public transport ground to a halt Monday, Scummo fingered the culprit, and if we thought evil unions were evil before, as we have thought, 
have known, thanks to alarming warnings from government and caring employers, listener, it gets worse. Not just evil unions, but the evil extremism of the Socialist Party. This is a statement, scummo warned. If people want to hand the country to unions under a socialist government, led by the most left-wing socialist leader in 50 years since Gough Whitlam, and that's probably being a bit unkind to Gough Whitlam, you might have to go back further. This is what they can expect. This is what the socialists think they can get away with when they think they're going to win an election. Imagine what they'd be like if they actually won it. Imagine. Why, they might even put worker representatives on the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it, commission. Scummo also thankfully alerted us to a bigger threat, especially with what's happening in Eastern Europe. The evil unions, and therefore the Socialist Party, are a threat to national security. And if we want proof, go no further than a recent Zoom meeting in which the Manufacturing Workers' Union Secretary joined Noam Chomsky in condemning... Sit down, listen, to talk about untrue blue lapdogs of evil autocrats condemning the AUKUS nuclear submarine deal. For God's sake, how more perfidious could you get? Noam Chomsky, we all know what he's like. And all of that, listener, was verbatim. No satirical embellishments. Given that Tarada rose from Scummo attacking the evil public transport union for going on strike, just a bit of a pity he forgot to do a fact check on whether they actually were on strike. And given they were not on strike, but locked out by Scummo's ideological mate, New South Wales Supremo Dom Parrott talk, we can assume Dom is a threat to everything we stand for, a threat to national security. Although, no, no, the evil unions must have been so evil they goaded poor Dom into closing down the entire system when he didn't have to. Which just goes to show how evil the evil unions and the Socialist Party are timely and logical and reasoned warnings. Aren't we lucky to have him? Oh, and finally, if that bit about the most left-wing socialist leader in 50 years has us bewildered, listener. Yes, he, he definitely meant Anthony all being easy. And the worry, I suppose, is he might be. Good afternoon. And many thanks to Mr Kevin Healy. Don't forget, no Kevin next week, but it's International Women's Day. But you can hear Kevin tomorrow on City Limits between 9 and 10 here on 3CR. A system based on profits, inequality and oppression cannot deliver a society that works for ordinary people. Capitalism has to go. During this global pandemic, millions of lives have been sacrificed by the let it rip strategy, all for the sake of the capitalist economy. The far right is on the offensive, in parliament and on the streets, and all the while, our planet continues to burn. Now, more than ever, we need revolution. We need socialism. This April, the Marxism 2022 conference will bring together revolutionaries and radicals from across the globe to address the pressing need to fight the right and rebuild the left. Talks, discussions, film screenings and interviews will cover the history of working class struggle and burning questions for socialists today. Get your ticket to the biggest left-wing conference in Australia at marxismconference.org. We have a world to win.
Marxism 2022 is a 3CR supporter. 3CR Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3cr and put them in the books and boots bin books and boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional first nations communities and children across the country contact us at books and boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book And a warm welcome once again to Kamal Fidel. He is the Polisario Front representative of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic to Australia and New Zealand. In Kamal, the celebration of the 46th anniversary of the Sahrawi Republic. It was declared on the 27th of February, 1976. What was the lead up to that day and what followed? Just the day before the uh, Spanish uh, authorities, the colonial power of Western Sahara, decided to withdraw, albeit in, in a disorganized <clears throat> manner, uh, and not in line with the United Nations Charter and resolutions, which um, requested colonial powers to undertake acts of self-determination for the local populations. Spanish withdrawal left uh, a vacuum in the territory, and the Sahari uh, people decided uh, to declare the Sahari Republic uh, on the 27th of February, 1976. There was a ceremony in the liberated areas announcing the declaration of the Sahari Republic, and then it was followed soon by recognition by a number of states, it reached 84 states worldwide, and the Sahara Republic was admitted to the African Union 84 as a full-fledged member of the regional organization, the African uh, Organization of African Unity at that time, now the African Union. I must say that uh, the Sahara uh, Republic has all uh, the credentials uh, to be uh, a sovereign state, given that it has a territory, uh, there is a people, a government, to run the affairs uh, in Western Sahara. It is also a viable entity, a viable state, given the experience it has, but also the economic potential 
uh, and the size of the territory and its strategic position. But before the declaration of the Sahara Republic, on the 31st of October 1975, uh, the Moroccan king, Hassan II at that time, announced he was uh, sending his army and thousands of Moroccans uh, to invade uh, Western Sahara uh, in violation of UN Charter. It was an act of aggression uh, in in violation of Article 2 of the UN Charter, triggered by an expansionist desire to acquire more territory and the, the benefits involved because, as I mentioned, the Sahara is very rich in natural resources. But also, the decision was to divert attention from the problems that uh, the monarchy faced in Morocco at that time, the challenges to the rule of the the absolute rule uh, and authoritarian autocratic rule of uh, Hassan II, uh, which causes a lot of suffering in Morocco, for the people uh, uh, of Morocco. What did Morocco do once the Sahrawi people claimed independence? What was their next move? It was brutal and bloody. The army came in and occupied most of the territory. There were bombardments by the Moroccan Air Force, which used uh, prohibited uh, weapons uh, like cluster bombs and napalm and phosphorus bombs against Sahrawi civilians, uh, which caused uh, the death of uh, people. And uh, since then, the people of the Sahara have faced, uh, you know, human rights abuses and occupation and suffering. Uh, be it in the occupied areas or uh, in the refugee camps where 170,000 Sahrawis live, uh, have lived for the past uh, uh, four decades. Uh, and I have just been to those refugee camps. It is, as I mentioned, an act of aggression and occupation uh, by force. Uh, and a challenge to the international system, and it caused a very serious and dangerous precedence uh, for other autocrats to invade and occupy territory by force. Uh, But in this case, unfortunately, there was no challenge by the international community or the United Nations or the big powers. On the contrary, we have seen the United States and France, for example, supporting the King of Morocco, uh, providing arms and political support for the regime uh, to continue its occupation and suppression of the Sahrawis and the continued oppression of the population. You're saying at that time the US and France sided with Morocco. What was in it for them? One, for France, it considers Morocco as its sphere of influence. There are economic interests involved, of course, but uh, at that time also there was the Cold War, uh, and Morocco sided uh, with the West. No matter what it did, they just turned a blind eye because it was on their side. doesn't matter if it you know, was involved 
abuses or occupation of territory or invasion of another entity or violation of UN Charter, uh, they were happy to, to support the regime in its wrongdoings. Uh, unfortunately, that still continues until now. And as you remember, by 2020, the then President of the United States, Donald Trump, issued a decree recognizing Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara, which is considered uh, as a nonsense governing territory by the United Nations. It's a decolonization issue which is still on the agenda of the UN. And there is a UN mission in the territory trying to organize a referendum of self-determination. So it was an illegal act by President Trump and a wrong signal to you know, other despots around the world who have uh, expansionist uh, aspirations to go and occupy other territory if they have the required uh, force to do so. As you said, there's close to 200,000 people now living in those refugee camps in Algeria. What was the starting point? Why did Algeria get involved? Well, Algeria did not get involved. Algeria found itself facing a situation on its borders. Uh, I must say that Algeria is the only neighboring country of Western Sahara that never had any uh, claim over the territory or any uh, in its resources, for example. But the bombardment of Morocco and the invasion of Mauritania, which is another neighboring country of the territory, forced thousands of Saharan civilians to flee for safety to the border with Algeria, and Algeria had to provide a safe haven for these refugees uh, and support, humanitarian assistance, medical uh, attention, uh, and uh, place of its territory for these refugees to set up camps and the United Nations High Commission of Refugees uh, got involved and the Red Cross, International Red Cross. So uh, Algeria did really uh, a generous gesture of support and solidarity with this invasion and occupation of their homeland uh, and the bombardment of the Moroccan Air Force. That was why Algeria provided safe haven for these refugees. Did the Moroccan authorities try to stop the refugees or were they glad to see them go? Yes, they did try to stop them. And in fact, they have they arrested hundreds of Sahrawis who were fleeing the, the, the invasion and put them in jail for decades. They also shot them uh, and uh, we have discovered mass graves uh, in recent years, um, investigations conducted by academics from Spain, for example, universities in Spain. There, there, there are you know, testimonies of people being thrown out of uh, helicopters, you know, people shot at, uh, killed, and others taken to jails uh, in Morocco. But a lot of people decided to see at the beginning of the invasion and were able to 
refugee camps and the Algerian territory before they were uh, detained. I know that there are people supporting those in the camps and over the years aid agencies have assisted, but I would imagine in the last couple of years because of COVID there are less and less people going to the camps. You've recently returned. What did you find there? Uh, you are right in the sense that COVID uh, has a negative impact on, on, on the refugee camps because they are completely dependent on international humanitarian assistance. So there is lack of uh, adequate food and medicine. You know, the isolation. Uh, no one was visiting and uh, at, for the past two years. That is uh, had a, a negative impact. The other thing is the, the resumption of hostilities, the war. Uh, as you know, on the 13th of November 2020, uh, Morocco violated uh, the ceasefire and uh, occupied a new territory and, you know, attacked civilians uh, who were protesting in the area of al Gagad on the border with Mauritania. So that, you know, caused the end of the ceasefire, which lasted uh, for 29 years. And so we have a situation of war at the moment. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the morale in the Sahara refugee camp is, is very high, and people are happy and um, determined because they know because they know that they have to sacrifice for uh, their homeland, uh, for their dignity, for their freedom, for their independence. There is a price to pay. Uh, they have paid dearly for, for this because they have been there in those refugee camps for 47 years and as a result of the invasion and occupation of their homeland but uh, there is no other alternative for them except to resist and to fight back and to, con- to continue their legal. We have learned from the Algerians that they had to sacrifice a million and a half in seven years of their liberation struggle. So that is an uh, inspiration for us. Uh, and there is always light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and we are sure that one day the Sahara will be free uh, and they will have uh, our homeland back. Uh, that was stolen from us by Morocco 47 years ago. As I said, it's been a difficult or more difficult time than most for the refugees in those camps because of COVID. How are they going with supplies of medicines, water, food? With difficulty, of course. But um, we have a lot of experience in dealing with difficult situations. Uh, When we uh, arrived in that band, uh, harsh desert in 1975. We had no tents, no medicine, no food, but the Sahrawi people are strong. And now they have gained experience. They have, uh, you know, also knowledge and have doctors. We have um, engineers. We have uh, people willing to work hard. So w- w- we've been ready for this 
for a while. Of course, there are shortages, which are inevitable. But a lot of friendly countries and allies have provided support. For example, two days ago, Cuba decided to donate thousands of vaccines, COVID vaccines, uh, to the Sahara refugees. Algeria has done so also, and uh, there is support from other countries. Uh, and now the situation has improved internationally in terms of COVID. Uh, there are, again, visits coming to the camp, solidarity visits and solidarity caravans organized from Europe, and the food and supplies are being sent. But there is a There's been a history of children going overseas in the last years of their education in the really hot months of summer. Is that still happening? Well, that was uh, stopped during the the last two years because of COVID, of course. But the good news is that it will resume this year again. So Sahrawi children will uh, have a respite from uh, the heat and uh, life in refugee camps in difficult conditions to go and spend some time with families in Spain and other European countries who will look after them and provide medical attention and uh, give them uh, time to experience somehow uh, normal life uh, for a few months, you know, come back with uh, experience of, of life with a different culture and different environment. And that is uh, also good for their education. That's why we have uh, a very uh, tolerant society that uh, is accepting of other cultures and religions, a peaceful culture. Uh, which is uh, not very common in in other Middle Eastern uh, societies. Are there still contacts between the people in the occupied territories and families in the camps? Is that possible? Well, very difficult because Morocco stopped what the United Nations called confidence-building measures, which uh, allowed... Sahrawi refugees to visit their families because of the invasion. Vice versa, also people from the occupied areas could visit the refugee camps. But uh, Morocco stopped that, and the United Nations was hopeless in trying to put pressure on Morocco or convince them to let that program continue. So there is uh, not much contact at the moment, except uh, you know through telephone or social media. Or well, some people manage to meet in Europe or in neighbouring countries like Mauritania. Is fighting happening in the occupied territories? Well, fighting is mainly around the berm or the wall, the sand wall uh, that Morocco erected in Western Sahara over 100,000 soldiers and uh, millions of landmines and barbed wire. It is happening there. 
all along the berm. In the occupied areas, there is peaceful resistance, which is always suppressed and crushed by the Moroccan authorities. We have talked about this before, the case of Sultana Khaya in Bujdu, Sultana who visited Melbourne in 2015 for over a year. She's not allowed to leave her home, and she's always beaten and raped and not allowed to express uh, herself. So it is a very sad case uh, of a, an innocent woman who's, who's being tortured on a daily basis. Are there others in a similar situation? Yes, but I, I just gave her as an example. But uh, Sahrawis who are brave enough to raise the Sahrawi flag or go on, on a peaceful protest in the street, they are immediately beaten, detained um, yeah, by the Moroccan authorities uh, who have thousands of soldiers and paramilitary troops and police and intelligence services in the occupied areas. Uh, occupied areas is like a big prison. You cannot express yourself, you cannot do anything against the Moroccan authorities uh, or you know, ex- express your support for self-determination or for polisario. These are crimes and you will, you will pay uh, harshly for, for you know, expressing yourself. As you've pointed out, there are countries that support Morocco in their occupation of Western Sahara, but there are also other countries supporting Western Sahara. A report back from the EU-African Summit in Brussels. Can you talk about that? Well, that was an interesting thing that happened um, recently uh, during the African Union Europe summit that was held in Brussels, uh, and the Sahara Republic was invited to attend, and our president, Brahim Ghali, uh, attended officially uh, the summit. So it was uh, an unprecedented uh, act uh, to have the Sahrawi president sitting in Brussels with European leaders and African leaders to discuss uh, important issues as a head of state. So it's a de facto recognition of the Sahara Republic by the European Union and European countries. Morocco, of course, was not happy, sent a low-level delegation to, to the summit. Nonetheless, it was present there, side by side with the Sahara Republic. It is a significant uh, event, uh, a victory for the Sahrawi people, and a recognition uh, by uh, the international community of the uh, inevitable reality of uh, a Sahara Republic that is a member of the African Union that is, you know, existing and functioning, uh, and it will be a factor of stability and peace and prosperity in the region. Where do you hope it will go from there? Well, hopefully this will uh, result in the Sahara Republic being admitted to the United Nations, rightly so, because uh, it is time for that to happen. If Morocco is not willing to resolve the issue, the only other alternative is to accept 
the reality that the Sahara Republic is an entity that exists and recognized, uh, and it should have its place in the United Nations as a full member of the of the organization. But to get past the block of France and the United States with a vote in the United Nations, is that a, a problem? Well, those countries, if they respect international law and human rights and democracy and the will of the people, they should not object to this. We have heard recently, these days, a lot of talk about respect of uh, borders and sovereignty, the will of the people. So let us end this double standard and uh, this hypocrisy on the international, in international politics and accept, you know, that Morocco was an aggressor. It invaded Western Sahara. It occupied it by force. It violated the United Nations Charter, and that there is a people who want to be fully independent, sovereign, to have their homeland, and they are entitled to do so, according to international law, the International Court of Justice, and the United Nations. And these people should be allowed to live a free, safe, peaceful life, dignified life in their homeland, they demand nothing else. We have no aspirations to occupy other people's territories or to violate the international system or to undertake untoward acts. We just want to live in peace uh, and freedom and in our territory. Nothing else. Uh, we're not asking for anything uh, which is not possible. Thank you, Kamal. You're welcome, and thank you for getting in touch. And Kamal Fadel is the Polisario Front representative of the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic to Australia and New Zealand. This deal really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australia domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together and the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples. This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.
Football is on now. The Open Air Series returns from January to April with an exhilarating program of live performance. See some of the best homegrown and international acts on the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl stage. Share a picnic on the hill, take in a symphony at sunset, or dance the night away to your favourite musicians. Explore the full program at artscentermelbourne.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Yarra City Arts and Umbrella Entertainment present Neighbourhood Watch, a pop-up outdoor cinema showcasing Australian films Friday nights throughout March. Head down to Linear Park, North Fitzroy, and catch free live music and films including The Big Steel, Storm Boy and The Babadook. BYO Picnic Blanket, Snack or grab dinner along Nicholson Street for Neighbourhood Watch. To find out more, visit yarracity.vic.gov.au forward slash rediscover. Yarra City Arts is a 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Dr. Tim Anderson is back in Australia after a week in Venezuela. Tim, where did you go? Right, so I'm part of a group, a network group, which is a a civil society group looking at solidarity and cultural innovations, I suppose, in the world, uh, and it's based in Latin America. So as part of that group, I was invited to a conference in Venezuela, and at the same time, coincided with the celebrations of the 4th of February, which is 30 years since Chavez led a civil civil military uprising against the neoliberal regime in Venezuela. So uh, I was there for a week, basically, and uh, able to update my understandings because I hadn't been in Venezuela for some years. How did you find the place after that length of time? Things had changed. I was there after Chavez's death, but not long after. And so there's been a lot of um, changes. I've followed, of course, you know, online and so on, the various ups and downs of the politic, the political economy during the Maduro presidency of the last uh, eight or nine years. So there have been some changes. And um, uh, also, of course, the whole currency situation was very different. I mean, some of the big changes were that the the Trump administration, no, the Obama and then the Trump administration imposed an economic blockade on Venezuela, like on Cuba. There was a currency crisis. Um, the opposition got control of the National Assembly for some years. That's shifted back now. So there's been quite a lot of changes, but also a great deal of continuity, really, because a lot of the changes that Chavez instituted are really quite institutionalized, and there's been some substantial 
institutional and cultural changes too, I think, in Venezuela, which makes the Chavista system, if you like, uh, much more resilient, even though they're still suffering the effects of the economic blockade. Of course, in the last dec decade, we've seen the U.S., carry out this type of economic war on literally dozens of countries uh, supported by the European Union. Can you explain what you mean by those changes which are now institutionalised? So within Venezuela, what's changed is that, for example, the constitution from very early days was a Bolivarian constitution. That is to say, uh, Venezuela is a country by its constitution, by its flag, by many of its institutions, including the armed forces, is committed to uh, an integration of Latin America, that is to say a union with other similar-minded Latin American countries based on their history, and also to a great deal of um, a project of, it's not exactly defined in terms of Venezuelan socialism, but it's defined in terms of the social equity of, of the tradition of Bolivar, that is to say getting rid of slavery, getting rid of foreign uh, interference, an anti-imperialist an anti-imperialist and integrationist project, basically. That type of ideology is embedded in many of the institutions of the state. And then there's a huge mobilization too. So despite the incredible economic pressures of recent years, you've got, for example, 4 million members of the Socialist Party of Venezuela. You've got also about 4 million members of the, the militia, the civil militia supporting the army. So it's a country that's been under... Uh, substantial changes in the last 20 years. What's happened to all the missions? The missions are still going, the Barrio Adentro, the primary health care, the primary and secondary education missions, they're still going. But of course, in many respects, um, they've completed their mission. For example, the Robinson, the adult literacy um, program, completed most of its mission many years ago. That is to say, they effectively eliminated two UNESCO standards, which I think is something like below 2% adult literacy. The primary health care mission, Barrio Dentro, is still going on. The Negro Hippolyta, the homeless people and so on, is still going on. So those are still there, and they it was a unique thing that Chavez set up, which was creating very rapid, large social programs outside the bureaucracy, because the bureaucracy itself was, and still is to a degree, a, a problem in Venezuela, to, to do things rapidly you needed that type of direct role of the state, basically, to create these uh, institutions very quickly. There's still also, of course, that um, the mission of, um, I've forgotten its name now, of providing food, food security, basically. So um, there's a large number of them, more than 30 of those social missions still ongoing. The economic sanctions, have they impacted on every part of society or particular parts? Well, first of all, I don't, like to call them economic sanctions, whether it's Syria or Venezuela or Cuba or whatever, they are um, technically unilateral coercive measures under international law because there is such a thing as economic sanctions which um, imposed with proper judicious process through the United Nations, but these are not them. So it's a type of economic warfare. And of course, in the case of Venezuela, there's been a massive theft of Venezuela's foreign assets, not least including productive assets like CITCO, that is to say, there was a huge petrol and uh, petroleum uh, network in North America. Chavez was selling discount fuel to four families in North America for many, many years. And what did the Trump regime do? Stole the entire network, billions and billions of dollars of productive assets, stole it, 
the British government stole um, gold reserves that Venezuela had. So there was wide-scale theft. And this is, of course, why they set up this very artificial thing of a, a totally non-elected person and designated him from the outside as president, Juan Guaido, you might have heard of him. They designated him as president so they could de-recognize the Venezuelan government and then simply steal all those assets and link them to Juan Guaido, who used to be a member of the National Assembly. He's not even a member of the National Assembly anymore. So on top of the, the blockade, the attempt to try and stop not just U.S. economic transactions, but try and stop all third-party transactions, other countries doing business with Venezuela, they also stole a huge amount of its assets and, and of course, reduced also the capacity of Venezuela to sell its oil in other countries. Food production is, has long been a problem. Well, the lack of, or the, of food production in Venezuela, they, for many, many decades, they relied on imports. How are they going at the moment? Yeah. Well, that's one good news story, effectively. Um, uh, the bad news is that people's incomes are very low, but there are social programs to deal with that. But in terms of production, you're right, Venezuela neglected for many, many decades uh, food production, agriculture, because of the it was an oil economy for 100 years. But that has turned around. Venezuela is now exporting, in some cases, food. So the production of food has changed quite substantially. And now the problem is, of course, uh, the currency and the, the, the salaries. Do you still have the big landowners, the big... Yes. Um, that's still happening? No, that was mostly eliminated. Most of the big landowners, particularly the big foreign... I remember Lord Vesey, who was involved in the Grinchy case in Australia. Uh, he was... A, that British um, aristocracy family was a big landowner in Venezuela. They were all bought out, Many, most of them in the Chavez era, basically. So um, there was a significant redistribution of land. Venezuela had the assets, had the resources to be able to do buyouts in most of those big landowning big landowning estates. Talking about the 30th anniversary that you attended, I imagine that most of the people in Venezuela were not born 30 years ago. How did people celebrate that day? Well, it was a celebration. I mean, it's a part of Venezuelan history now. And in Venezuela, like in many parts of Latin America, they have a very keen sense of history. They celebrate things. In Cuba, for example, they celebrate uh, a lot of things in the 19th century with a great deal of passion. So you're right that a lot, most of the young people are not born 30 years ago, but the, uh, the celebrations were, in this case, the big, the big rallies were from people who are involved in the militia, who are involved in the military, and, of course, the veterans of that actual uprising in 1992 that was against the neoliberal regime. Of course, remember that followed, uh, there was an uprising in Caracas in 1989 called the Caracaso, which was... A, a riot, a, a widespread uprising, which was put down by force. Many hundreds of people were killed by the, the government of that time. And uh, two and a half years later, a combination of civil groups, Bolivarian groups and military groups led by Chavez led a failed uprising in 1992. Chavez was jailed, but when he came out of jail, he was the most popular person in the country, and that led to his election. So... Um, People are keenly aware of that sort of history, and of course the government does a lot to ferment that memory, that history. There's, a, there's very strong popular education. That's why I said that the, the cultural shifts as well as institutional shifts 
are important in Venezuela. Um, Maduro has taken over in many respects. President Maduro has taken over the role that Chavez had in always being there every day, um, publicly talking to the public in a way that Fidel Castro did in, in, in Cuba, constantly talking, constantly reminding them of their history and their their mission, the ideology of Bolivarian, uh, the Bolivarian revolution. So people are very conscious, even and many young people are very conscious of those um, historic events and the role of Chavez, and they remember Chavez too very strongly. How strong do you believe the opposition to the government is at this time? The opposition, uh, and this is important, the opposition is significantly weakened because it's been divided, basically. The opposition traditionally, including the first time I went to Venezuela 17 years ago, there was a National Assembly elections, and most of the opposition was boycotting. And the result of that was that the, the Chavez took over the National Assembly in 2005 for the next four or five years, and they lost out on that because they'd placed all their bets at that time with the US and with another coup because the culture of the Venezuela had been that they relied on US-backed coups. This has happened throughout Latin America. It's not something just to do with the Latin Americans because the US has intervened so systematically over more than 100 years that the extreme right in most of the Latin American countries simply waited around for the next US-backed coup and they didn't bother to participate. Well, since that time, in, you know, or in the last 20 years, let's say, in Venezuela, the Chavista governments under Chavez and then Maduro have constantly made these outreach to include the opposition in politics. And so from time to time, uh, it's gone up and down. But in the last few years, one of the great successes of the Maduro government has been to encourage sections of the opposition to re-participate. And at the moment, for example, they have three, I think, of the 21 governors in the states of Venezuela, including a man, Manuel Rosales, who was in exile in Peru because he was charged with um, criminal fraudulent activities. But Maduro gave him a pardon. He came back and he resumed his role. He was re-elected as governor of Zulia State, for example. So, in other words, the opposition has been significantly divided and the group that was siding with Juan Guaido and some of the others um, linked to Washington and refusing to participate has diminished somewhat. Or to put it another way, the numbers of those in the, in the opposition participating in Venezuelan processes, and there are lots of elections. I think since Chavez became president in the, uh, 23 years ago, there's been like 29 elections, I think, and the Chavistas have won 26 of them, something like that. So the, the opposition is divided, and for that reason, they can't really mobilise against um, against the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, led by Nicolas Maduro. Let's talk about the conference, Tim. Who was there and what were the main issues? The network conference that I attended was one of uh, something called the, the Red in Defence of La Humanidad, the Network in Defence of Humanity. And it's a lot of, mainly a lot of intellectuals from uh, Latin America, um, particularly South America, but also some people from Europe and Africa and Asia and strange little odd places like Australia. So that, that's why I was there, basically. And our conference was really looking at the big cultural shifts and the challenges of intellectuals, artists and social movements. So 
it's sort of parallel. The, the political processes in Latin America and has some pretensions to go wider in the world, basically. I'm also involved in a similar network in the Middle East, which is interesting because that network, the Tajamu, is really mainly based in the Arab and Muslim countries, but it's also trying to make an outreach. So in, in part, my role has been to try and create some of those links, in other words, to raise the profile of Palestine and Syria and Iran in Latin America and vice versa. And of course, as we know, there are already very strong links between, for example, the governments of Cuba and Venezuela and the governments of in Syria and uh, the people of Palestine, for example. So that already exists at a governmental level, but um, more or less there's an intellectual network in the Middle East and one in Latin America, and I'm trying to uh, help build the links between those two outside, but in parallel to many of the links between the governments of the Middle East and Latin America. And where do you want those links to work forward with? What's the purpose? The purpose is so that we have discussions about the common challenges being faced by, for example, the independent countries in the Middle East, <clears throat> the six or seven countries that are facing wars from imperialism, and similarly the, the Latin American countries that are facing wars resisting uh, imperial wars and interventions in, in Latin America. So it's to generate at an intellectual level, at an artistic level, at a social movement level, the cultures of resistance and anti-imperialism and the, the ideas of creating a new world. You know that slogan from the, the World Social Forum, another world is, is possible, where this, these movements come from. And this is something entirely new or it's been tried before? Uh, the networks have been going for about uh, a decade or more. I mean, the one in the Middle East began as a, a Lebanese network and expanded to the Arab world, and then it's, it's tried to expand still further. The network in defense of humanity is something that's been going for more than 10 years. All in all, Tim, you were encouraged by what you saw in Venezuela? I was. I was, um, even though... Things are very hard. The salaries are extremely low there. There's a lot of economic pressure, but the economy at the, the second half of last year in Venezuela is recovering. There's some substantial economic growth and some of the new relationships that Venezuela has economically. I mean, it's notable, for example, that Iran helped restart Venezuela's refineries and there's an exchange of heavy for light fuel, which is helping that process. The world is changing, really. You know, the, the problem is that the U.S. has tried to crush independent states around the world, and they've done it. They've carried out this economic warfare and an actual warfare against so many countries that these alliances are being formed, you know, between Russia and China, between Venezuela and Iran, between Cuba and Syria and so on. And there, there are really interesting networks forming between those countries. I'm speaking with Dr. Tim Henderson, recently back from Venezuela. You were talking there, Tim, about networks between countries, and you mentioned Russia. We're all aware now of the double standards of the world for all to see. 
concerning Russia? There's a couple of things that are happening there. One, there's a massive barrage of fake videos and photos and so on because uh, in between the two narratives, which one is that Russia is in, and the other one is Russia is doing an operation to protect the independent republics uh, and also to what they call denazify the country. That means there's military operations going on in other parts of Ukraine but aimed at military targets and not at civilians. So there's sort of the two competing stories. Well, there's a lot of fake videos. I'm just looking at one now, which I've just seen. There was a video of a tank going over a, a vehicle in Kiev. It was a Ukrainian tank, not a Russian tank, apparently. And they're recycling images from Palestine and from the NATO bombing of Yugoslavia to say it's Kiev and that Kiev is on. I think a big theme in the in the in the Western media is that there is a a Russian attack on Kiev and the civilians of Kiev, which doesn't seem to be happening when you look at the evidence there. So that's the same sort of phenomenon we saw, wasn't it, with uh, Syria for many years, you know, that the Syrian government is killing its own people and they were recycling images from Gaza and all over the place and so on. So there's that going on on the one side. There's also a very strong racist media story coming through, and I've seen it in North American media and French media, and uh, it's this line, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but I've just posted a couple of versions of this. They're saying, look at this, these are civilised people being attacked in Ukraine. This is not Afghanistan, Iraq or Syria. These are civilised you know, European people. Very overtly racist sort of narrative, as if to say the NATO wars against the half a dozen countries in the Middle East are against uncivilised people and the Ukraines, although from the Russian side, they're actually fighting neo-Nazis. This, uh, the Russian-speaking eastern part of, of, Ukraine, of Ukraine, you know, that is supposed to be civilised people. In fact, there's another aspect to that uh, I've seen recently, which is that Facebook has lifted its, you know, Facebook has hundreds of groups and individuals banned, that you can't mention their name. I was kicked off Facebook for mentioning Soleimani and Mohammed, the heroes of Iraq and Iran, who Trump murdered. And they had the, uh, some of the neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine listed too, the Azov Battalion, which is overtly Nazi. I mean, and their heroes are people who were actual Nazis with the SS in, uh, you know, in the Second World War and so on. The ban on the Azov Battalion has been lifted by Facebook because they're fighting the Russians. So Facebook has reversed its decision on banning that group, even though they're neo-Nazis, because of their current role. So it's, to me, it raises this paradox that NATO is now supporting the overtly Nazi groups in Ukraine, fighting against the Russians, in the same way that they supported overtly the Al-Qaeda groups in the Middle East, fighting against the independent states there. So we've got a lot, a lot of parallels, but on the other hand, a, a distinction between the way in which the Western media is portraying this so-called Russian invasion of Ukraine and the way they talk about all of the NATO wars in other parts of the world. Talk about how these two parts of Ukraine came to be as they are. It's unfortunate to say something's complicated, but it is in a sense that Ukraine is divided in many respects between West and East, and this is for historical reasons. But, for example, the Russian fleet has always been based in Crimea. When Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, none of this mattered too much, and there was a bit of shuffling backwards and forwards. You end up with Ukraine of today, which was created in the early 90s, and then revised with the coup in 2014, such that you've got at of eastern Ukraine is Russian-speaking, identifies Russian, and indeed 
many hundreds of thousands of them have Russian citizenship. I think it's 700 and something thousand have Russian, have dual citizenship, Ukraine and, and Russian. So these are the people that reacted to the coup in 2014, which was the Maidan coup, which is celebrated still as a some sort of color revolution based on a very ethnocentric, let's put it mildly, nationalism, which goes back 100 years in Ukraine, in the western side of Ukraine, and was represented by the OUN, what's it called, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, something like that, a nationalist group, which uh, were directly involved with these until when the Nazis were using them against uh, the Soviets. Um, of course, in the end, the Nazis abandoned them because the Nazis didn't want a... Uh, I'm talking about German Nazi Party. They didn't want an independent Ukrainian state. They just wanted to use them against the uh, the Russian communists, the Soviet communists at that time. So there's a guy called Stefan Bandera, who's the leader of those nationalists, who is still revered today officially by Ukrainian government in Kiev and their embassies and so on. He was a direct collaborator with the Nazis in that period, specifically targeting Polish people, Jews and Soviet communists trying to eliminate them to create some homogenous national Ukraine identity. Now, that substantial minority support in Western... Uh, if you look at some opinion polls, there's 50% moderate support for the Stepan Bandera nationalism and 32% strong support, So, and hardly any support in Eastern Ukraine. So the country is divided over that extreme nationalism, and that extreme nationalism has been used since... 2014, since the coup in, in Kiev in 2014, against the Russian-identified, Russian-speaking people in that eastern part in the Donbass region, which is now recognised by Russia and some other states as independent republics of Lugansk and Donetsk. The Ukrainian regime, the Kiev government, has been arming with NATO help, that is to say, although Ukraine is not a member of NATO, NATO, like Germany, for example, and the US have been providing weapons to those neo-Nazi groups to assail the breakaway republics in the eastern part of Ukraine. And as one writer put it, the current Senate, uh, the Russian leadership having two choices, one to allow the neo-Nazi groups to take over that Donbass region, the Russian-speaking Donbass region, and then have a, a neo-Nazi armed group on the border of Russia there, threatening Russia. Uh, and remember the history of Russia with the Nazis. The people who suffered most at the hands of the German Nazis were precisely the Russians, the Soviet communists. 26 million people lost their lives in the Second World War in fighting against those people. And some of the main collaborators that were involved with them were precisely extreme right-wing Ukrainian nationalists. So this is a very powerful existential threat to Russia. And, and the alternative was to recognise those independent republics, which Russia hadn't recognised for eight years, because there was a process called the Minsk Agreements from 2014, 2015, two of them, to say, no, no, let those republics, that region, stay in Ukraine, but the Kiev government, whatever they have, they recognise some form of autonomy for those Russian-speaking, Russian-identified uh, people in, in the east of Ukraine. Nothing ever came of that. The Minsk agreements were not respected. Um, NATO pushed the Ukrainian government to not respect them. Uh, they pushed them to keep this idea of um, pushing the, the borders up against Russia, of course. Another factor there is that when the Soviet Union was dismantled, there were promises from the NATO leadership not to move 
borders of NATO closer to Russia, and they've done it in almost every respect except Ukraine, that is to say in Poland, in the Baltic states, and so on. Basically, what Russia says, the Russia side, which is not very well put, to put it mildly, in the NATO-aligned media, is that this military operation, this attack on Ukraine, is not an attempt to take over Ukraine, but rather to recognise and protect those independent parts, independent Russian-speaking parts of eastern Ukraine, now recognised as independent republics, and to drive back the neo-Nazis who have been assailing it, and they talk about denazification of Ukraine also. So that's a long-winded way of giving some background, I suppose. Just go back to the Soviet Union time, NATO and the Warsaw Pact. When the Soviet mm. Union broke up, what was this supposed to be the deal yeah. about those two groupings? So the Warsaw Pact effectively dissolved at that time, and there was talk even about whether Russia could, the Russian Federation could join NATO, but NATO didn't want that. Uh, in the 90s, there was a period where there was effectively a, a fire sale of Russian assets. There was, there was a terrible Great Depression in Russia. Um, it was a, an awful time, really, but uh, economically and socially, that life expectancies went backwards in the 90s in Russia. The, the, this century, the start of the 21st century, identified with the Putin presidency has been one where they've gradually recovered some sort of level of income, pensions, um, health care, standard of living, more or less. So in that 90s period, the West was very happy because they were, they were big, large-scale privatizations, a, new, a lot of Western investment went into Russia, uh, a new oligarchy, or rather a sort of a network of oligarchies, type of mafia that grew up in Russia itself to the point where now there are a couple of factions of oligarchs, uh, very wealthy billionaires who are influential in Russian politics, and obviously they have their links into the Russian government, and some of them have links to Israel and some of them do not. That sort of accounts for some of Russia's foreign policy elsewhere in the world. But um, in that time, effectively, NATO has kept expanding, and Russia recovering its identity, you might say, is has become increasingly worried about that and uh, Putin as president has made that very clear you know that this we regard this as an existential threat the eastward expansion of NATO the fact that NATO is arming actual neo-Nazis who actually identify with the Third Reich in Germany on our borders which was our biggest calamity and trauma of the last century this is not something we take lightly and uh, listen to our concerns well of course NATO didn't because the US Leadership um, was rather happy with the idea of trying to, uh, I mean, this, and this is important to understand, I think the U.S. is very concerned about a possible normalization of relations between Germany in particular and Russia or the European Union and Russia. And that was being seen in the form of this gas pipeline, in particular the most recent one, Nord Stream 2, coming through the North Sea from Russia into Germany. It was almost complete. And the U.S. under various administrations was trying to block it for all sorts of reasons. Pragmatically, the German industrialists were keen to get cheaper Russian gas rather than buy more expensive US gas or gas from the Persian Gulf, from Qatar or whatever. But you can see the, the events of the last few weeks have effectively cut that now that Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline has been blocked. And so a normal 
uh, or a semi-normal sort of economic relationship between Germany, which is at the centre of the European Union, and Russia is now stalled off indefinitely, effectively. And that's what the US wanted, because think of it in a geopolitical sense. What role is there for the US in Europe at all if there is normal relations, commercial relations between uh, Russia and Germany and the rest of Europe. If there's a normalization, then you could say the same thing in Korea, in East Asia there. What role is it for an American power to be in Europe or to be in Asia if there is not that sort of division and that sort of high tension division in those states there? So I think the US in the last couple of weeks in driving a wedge between European Union or the European, the main European, Western European countries and Russia, that's what it wanted. Of course, when it came to Ukraine itself, of course, the US doesn't give a damn about the Ukrainian people. They're, they're acting as if they do at the moment, but of course, they didn't, um, they didn't lift a finger to uh, protect them from what's going on at the moment. Would you ex- have expected Germany to stand up a bit stronger? No, not really, because Germany, remember, is also a semi-colonised part of the US. Effectively, there are still tens of thousands of US troops in Germany. It's um, politically has grown up very dependent on the US. They call it Atlanticism. You know, Atlanticism means you have an elite in Germany which is very closely tied to the US financially, even though, of course, Germany has some independent interests which are interpreted in a, a strange sort of way in light of Germany's history. Like there is a section of, of uh, German politics which doesn't regard uh, or regards as sort of akin to neo-fascism any expression of German national interests at all. In other words, nationalism has been so run down by the Nazi past that to say that Germany has some particular interests is sort of regarded as a type of heresy these days. That accounts for its strange sort of um, suppliant relationship with Israel too, that it, it condones any sort of crime committed by Israel against the Palestinian people because of this guilt from its historical baggage with the Nazi era there. So Germany... I, I wouldn't have seen of taking any any independent initiative. They were, of course, they still are providing arms to Ukraine and and to Israel for that matter. Germany is a major provider of after the U.S. Germany is the second major provider of weapons to the Middle East and to Ukraine. So that's important in that respect. These neo-Nazis, and let's remember, these are neo-Nazis being of the Azov Battalion, for example, and some other groups are being armed by Germany and. Israelis are helping them too. There's a whole debate in Israel amongst the, the liberal Zionists, let's say, about the wisdom of Israel supporting uh, extreme right-wing neo-Nazi groups who are still overtly anti-Jewish and who actually took part in the killing of Jewish people in the, back in the 1940s. So this is the, the scenario that's really being hidden by the stories of you know, the brave, resilient Ukrainian people standing up for the evil Russian communists. It's a, it's a, once again, it's a type of a cartoon figure media that we're being served up. And the, the one bright light is there is that there are some other currents, at least in social media, that haven't been banned as yet. <laughs> Although the Western media is progressively banning more and more Russian media, but still there are some alternative sources of information people can see about this particular war. Would NATO survive without the United States? It would be a very different beast, really. I mean, it's, it's grown into a monster. Um, what is NATO doing in Iraq and Syria? Trump convinced them to move, formally move 
NATO into the Middle East. There have been at least eight wars in the Middle East in the last 20 years. NATO has been part of most of them. What on earth is NATO doing in the Middle East? It's meant to be about North Atlantic. It was meant to it was a relic of you know, the alliance between North America and the Europeans against Nazism, which was a product of Western Europe, let's remember. Fascism was had its base in a number of West European countries. If the US was not part of that, if the US didn't have a presence in Europe, there would be necessarily a, a realignment of a European Union, which itself is closely tied to NATO these days, and a, a, a realignment of that. But, but what would be central to that would be one might imagine that there could have been a normalisation of relations in particular between Germany and Russia. This is central to the whole thing. I remember I was in Germany, um, it was I think the 75th anniversary of the invasion, yeah, 2016, the 75th anniversary of the German invasion of Russia in 1941, which was a disaster. It was a terrible disaster except in one sense it led to the downfall of Nazi Germany because it was the Soviet Union that was principally responsible for the defeat of the the armies of Nazi Germany there. Now, at that time, the German leadership, the Atlanticist elite, as, I, as they're called often in Germany, um, was really involved in NATO manoeuvres in Poland and the Baltic state on the borders of Russia. A lot of people thought this wasn't a good idea. There was a poll done in Germany, the average German person, I think it was something like 80%, thought it was a really bad idea for NATO to do provocations with tanks and whatever Russia on the 75th anniversary of Germany's invasion of Russia. But <clears throat> that didn't correspond to what the German elite thought because they were so embedded with the, the motivation of the US leadership. So anyway, to the short answer to your question is, if the US were not, did not have a strong presence in Europe, uh, NATO would not exist as it does today. Let's talk about the economic wars and where that could lead to worldwide. Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And um, I think there's actually a, a bright light here in that for those of us that look at events in a, what, what do you call it, a dialectical way, you know, you have a thesis, an antithesis and a synthesis. There is such a large extent of so-called sanctions, which are really technically in international law terms, in most cases, unilateral coercive measures. They are unilateral in the sense they're outside international law, usually in breach of international law, and they're intended to coerce political change. So the US and the European Union between them have these so-called sanctions, I call them siege measures, economic warfare, against 33 countries now, 33 countries. And that's if we don't include some of the partial measures against Russia and China. But because it's moved into measures that uh, attack those big powers, the big counterweights in the world like Russia and China, perhaps China in particular, the possibility of creating alternative financial infrastructure. We already have alternative trade channels and as we know, production is no longer, technology and production is no longer centered in Europe and North America, that East Asia is very important these days in particular. So the world economy is shifting and the those that used to die the economy are paranoid about losing their sort of power. And where they still control things very strongly is in the media and in finances. And the US, through the US dollar, through the SWIFT system of, of exchanges between banks, is still very powerful. Now, the, what has happened just in the last few days with 
the Biden administration saying that it wants to cut Russia out completely from the SWIFT system. It means that Russian banks will not be able to carry out transactions with other banks through the SWIFT system. It creates a huge incentive to do what a number of states have been threatening to do and have begun to do, but haven't really done it to a substantial extent. Now, there has been a move away from the dollar in recent decades. It's generally been called diversification to the point where maybe three quarters of international trade was in the dollar 20, 30 years ago. Now it's down to about half because there are bilateral swaps. You know, the Chinese will accept Argentinian currency or or Indian currency, whatever it is, and the other side will accept yuan, you know, but, but nevertheless, neither the euro nor the yuan are really as big as the dollar still these days. And that's largely because of the Swiss system, which is dominated, which is based in Europe, but is dominated by the Americans. So the Europeans actually set up an alternative called Insta-90s, because they were trying to do business with some countries like Cuba. But back in the 90s, there was only a few countries that had these unilateral coercive measures imposed on them. Now there's 33. And because the US insists on imposing third-party sanctions, which is another form of illegality under international law, that is to say, it's not just that the US has banned business with Iran or with Syria or with um, Lebanon or with Iran, uh, with Venezuela or whatever it is, but they are banning, trying to ban countries from doing business with them and they will penalise them if they do business with them. Sanctions are affecting the whole world, really. And so uh, what I think is the, the redeeming feature here is that, and, and I think it's a sign of an of a, of a empire in decline, effectively, that it's trying to lash out with very illiberal measures. But I think the, the bright side is that it's going to force China in particular, but also Russia, to move into this more into this alternative system. The Chinese have a system, uh, a payment system parallel to the SWIFT system, but it hasn't uh, got a huge presence yet, I think, that because Russia will look to do business with America and so on, I think we'll see a rise of a a parallel alternative um, financial payment system between banks, which is going to further uh, weaken the grip, the financial grip of the US um, economy in the world. Okay, thanks, Tim. Thanks, Chance. And I was speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson. Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, arts, activism, culture and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non-conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non-conforming presenters, producers and musicians dismantling the patriarchy, taking collective action and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll be music, performers, food and friends. Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID safe event. So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022.
So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action with some of the people who are on strike today. Can you tell us your names and how old you are? Uh, so my name's Ivy and I'm 12 years old. My name is Marta and I'm 8 years old. My name's Layla and I'm 11 years old. Inequality is at a 70 year high. Our jobs are going offshore, our jobs are being casualised. 40% of us are trapped in insecure work. The richest 1% have more than the 70% of us at the bottom. And workers will stand up and fight. You've never seen a fight before until you back the Australian workers into a corner and tell them they've got no rights. Those workers will fight. 3CR, union issues and workers' struggles. Feed Radical Radio. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. G'day, this is Jacob from the Friday Rave. If the week's politics have left you wondering whether it's you or the rest of the planet that's gone completely and utterly bonkers, join us at 5 o'clock each and every Friday for a Friday Rave here on 3CR, where we'll do our best to reassure you that it is actually you, and us. A Friday Rave, bringing the 5 o'clock drinks debrief to you, here on Community Radio 3CR. I'm speaking now with Human Rights and Trade Union activist Peter Murphy. Peter, on the 25th of February 1986, President Ferdinand Marcos fled the Philippines after a 20-year rule, and it said in the wake of a tainted election. It was much more than that, wasn't it? It's just part of the story. I do think uh, the you know the, definitely the election... He attempted to cheat it. There was uh, you know, massive popular mobilisation to defend the ballots from you know, being destroyed or you know, confiscated and stuff like that um, after the snap election. He was um, defeated, I, I think, clearly by Horizon Aquino, the widow of Benigno Aquino II, who was uh, assassinated in uh, 1983 by uh, Marcos's forces. But what happened afterwards was that there was a division in the security forces. So one group of uh, the police and the army together decided to remove Marcos. But Marcos was informed about this by, I think, the Americans. And so his uh, army chief, uh, Fabian Vare, General Vare, I think his name was, who, who I think ran the assassination of Benigno Malkino, he laid a trap for these uh, uh, assault against the palace that was planned. So they called that off. And the rebel police and military uh, leaders uh, retreated to Camp Krami. And the army was in Camp Aguinaldo, just like across the street. There was a sort of a big standoff and the tanks were sent in against the rebels. That is the point at which Cardinal Sin... Uh, used the Catholic radio to call people onto the streets to try to uh, avoid a bloodbath in the battle between these two parts of the, or formerly part of the Marcos dictatorship. So that's what happened. And uh, because the people blocked the tanks, moved then came that Marcos should go. You know, And basically the senior American political figures did the role. They contacted Marcos and said, we'll send a helicopter, you've got to leave. 
and they took him to Clark Air Base and from Clark they flew into Honolulu. You can see how complicated it was. Can I just go back a step and ask you why there was this revolt in the armed forces? Yes, I think uh, it was um, General Fidel Ramos and uh, Juan Ponce Enrile were the leaders of the um, army and police who wanted to remove Marcos. I think that they could see, you know, it was a dead end for the dictatorship and that there had to be a change and they would remove him. But the Americans weren't prepared to allow a violent removal from within the regime. That's why they sort of neutralised it. You can see that there was a very big agitation developed against the dictatorship after the assassination of Aquino and took, you know, a few years, but that it was very strong. So people took heart that uh, they should take, you know, a stand, the mass protests, the strikes, all really accelerated in the three years up to, or two and a half years up to that election. And Marcos himself called the snap election. It wasn't scheduled or anything. So he thought he could win it uh, by his you know, authoritarian manipulation and uh, that he would still consolidate himself in power. But, you know, a dictatorship is not one person, even though it's definitely commanded by one person. It is a system, and it was really cracking up under the political stress of the people's protests. So, yes, I think that that's the main explanation. Was there a surprise that Cardinal Sin came out in supporting the people? Because often in situations like this, you have the the, the, um, the priests and the nuns helping the people, but the upper echelons of the Catholic Church side with the, the powers that be? Yes, but I think, again, we're in a special time because the dictatorship was largely striking against powerful uh, families who owned important economic assets in the country and they're seizing their assets. And, you know, it's a sort of a plundering operation. So there were very powerful families who were, you know, had their leading figures imprisoned, uh, imprisoned for years. And especially uh, Aquino was the leader of one such family and he was killed. You know, for the Cardinal, this is his own social layer who are in jail, getting killed, being threatened, being robbed. So I think that, uh, yes, Cardinal Sin was an exceptional character for the church in the Philippines. There hasn't been anyone like him since for instance, but it's not such a surprise that he would speak up for his own social circle as well as, I think, for his principles, which, uh, you know, he he also is very close to Corazon Aquino and the Aquino family. He was willing to, uh, you know, condemn the uh, attacks on them and to call out the dictatorship for what it was. And I think many people do, of course, really respect Cardinal Sin for the role he played in that those few years and up to 1986 and even a, a bit later. But it think, things got a bit worse after uh, 1987, so it changed again. But you have to say, or real, realise that Philippine society was under exceptional stress because of the dictatorship. And, you know, the exceptional circumstances allowed a character like Cardinal Sin to play what was a very important role at that moment in uh, February 1986. You know, when when you think about what he did, he, he didn't call on anyone to commit violence. He, he called on people to try to prevent violence. So it was very much, you know, resonating with the values of uh, Christianity and the Catholic Church. 
for him to do it, do that. It wasn't in that sense he was, you know, being a proper church leader. Well, we're looking at 36 years later, Peter. Is there still a legacy yes. of Marcos? Yes, I'm afraid to say this, Jan, but really we're getting a, a concerted effort now to reinstate the Marcos family and, and really the Marcos dictatorship. That is what we're seeing before our eyes. The um, complications of Philippine elite politics mean that, first of all, even uh, President Aquino, even though she took some strong action against some of the cronies of Marcos, she wasn't willing to have a sort of root and branch reform. She she did uh, preside over a process for a new constitution, which was, you know, really uh, a big step forward in democratic terms for the Philippines. But the constitution's hardly been applied, you know, in in its spirit since it was adopted in in 1987. We had Aquino herself was subjected to um, I can't remember how many attempted coups, 13 or 14, something. It was a very violent time. Um, and those coups came from the right wing, you know, more or less the forces who thought that they should have taken over from Marcos but were neutralised by the Americans and, and put out, you know, off balance by Cardinal Sin and therefore a woman, Corazon Aquino, got to be the president. They, didn't, they never accepted that. These are people like uh, Honas, and uh, he's still around as a senator, and uh, and other military figures. I think you can see that President Estrada, who who got elected in 1998, was actually close to the Marcoses, and uh, in his populism was, you know, he's the like the only alternative that people had to the really dead end elite politics which they had from much of Aquino, President Corazon Aquino's time and also the subsequent President Ramos. It's sort of seesawed between Aquino and Aquino-related families and those friends of Marcos ever since. And Duterte is the latest one of these. An unresolved issue in Philippines uh, politics that Marcoses were allowed to keep billions and billions of dollars of plundered assets uh, Imelda Marcos was able to be in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, sorry, and her son, got, who's now the candidate, he got to be a senator. How could this be? You know, that they, they basically had robbed the country and yet they were free to continue to operate politically. And Ferdinand Marcos Jr. now, he's, he's definitely the front runner in this election that's coming up on May 9. It's, I think, a comment on, obviously, it's a, it's principally a Filipino affair, that that this uh, situation has come about. But it's also a comment on, you know, the United States, which has overall hegemony in this situation. And, you know, governments like Australia's, whether they're Labor or Liberal, have always backed the American position in the Philippines. The international community, especially United States, Australia, Japan, have a responsibility for this situation coming around again. Believe me, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. does not criticise one thing his father did. He's not even admitting that they've got stolen money. And he's saying that if he was president, he would continue the very, very uh, savage and repressive policies of uh, the current president, Duterte, and even expand them. That's the language. And I think in his campaigning so far, he's, he's not really enunciating much policy. 
he's just getting his picture taken looking like his dad. So he's appealing to a sort of weird nostalgia for good order and discipline, a strong man. It would be tragic if, if somehow or other in the end he succeeded. Has the Duterte family been in the background all of these years? Yes, uh, um, Duterte's father played a role in the martial law administration. Duterte, the current president, grew up in his childhood with Ferdinand Marcos Jr. They were playmates for a while. And, yeah, there's been an association all along. And now we have Sarah. Sarah Duterte is the daughter of uh, President Duterte. It's like a dynasty, so... He, when he couldn't be the mayor, you know, because of the constitutional limits on terms of office, she stepped in and, and took over the role. Uh, like she was the candidate and got elected. And uh, so there's a bit of rotation between father and daughter. And there definitely was a strategy for Sarah Duterte to be the candidate for president. But I think that the complications that were apparent for President Duterte in his six years where he tried he tried to change things a fair bit uh, in, the, you know, in a bad way. He couldn't uh, change the constitution uh, despite a sort of fairly concerted effort. He fell out with other powerful families in that sort of extreme, uh, you know, Marcos side of politics. In the end, he couldn't engineer, you know, his daughter into the pole position. And Marcos, Junior announced his candidacy or his intentions, you know, about two years ago. Sarah Duterte didn't move fast enough. So by the time she was ready, um, which was like the middle of last year, to say, "I'm president," Ferdinand Marcos Junior was saying, "I'm, I'm not stepping aside. I'm, I'm going to do this." President Duterte didn't have the leverage, I think, to to change that, and I'm not surprised. That Marcos family are the kingmakers. They've got all the money and they, they intend to retrieve their, their position entirely. As you've intimated, the Philippines is not a country where there's been, say, free and fair elections. Is there any possibility that on May the 9th things could change, or are we looking at just the same? can always be better. You know, the adjectives are hard <laughs> to get for the Philippines, but, you know, it's a very vibrant political culture in the Philippines, um, there are a lot of voices able to say something and the people in various ways, uh, in regions, in social movements, in trade unions, um, have organisations which can really assert uh, their demands clearly and organise support for them. Um, but on the other hand, uh, ruling families and uh, upper layers have their, have their own access to um, private armies, security forces and connections which enable, you know, violent repression of uh, people who they see as threats. I think um, overall, from my, um, my role in the Investigate PH process last year, I would have to say that the repression uh, now underway in the Philippines is the worst it's ever been since the 1960s. Um, that, you know, it's actually worse than under Marcos. Uh, in his dictatorship period, it's uh, yet uh, possible that the the voting won't work out for these, uh, you know, dictatorial characters. Besides, you know, Marcos himself, there's three, at least three other presidential candidates who are violent, strong men, who obviously uh, have got big egos and also think they can do a better job of, you know, 
uh, wiping out the opposition than, say, Marcos or the others. There's also, uh, Jan, the factor of a sort of um, lots of experience in the Philippines of cheating in elections. This is something that the government can do, not so much the opposition um, or alternatives even in the upper classes. When the last election happened in 2016, the cheating was done by the more traditional political families, the outgoing President Aquino and his group. You know, looking at the way the votes were counted, it was very odd that Lenny Robredo won the vice presidency and Bong Bong Marcos, the current Marcos Jr., he he almost won the vice presidency. Um, But Duterte clearly, you know, outstripped the... um, a Rojas candidate that he, he was facing. And, uh, you know, it looked to me like there was a calculated cheat that is done by the computers. The counting was shut down for nine hours at the time and bingo, this result came out after. <laughs> the cheating was certainly not sufficient to deny Duterte his win, but it was sufficient to deny Bongbong Marcos his win. He, I would say he probably did win it, just looking at this. And... In terms of the party lists and, and the other groups which have progressive policies, which I try to follow, the one that had always got you know two or three seats in in the Congress got zero. That just doesn't add up, you know, either. So there was collateral damage down the line for these other candidates who were associated with either of the two main options in the election. So I think. Again, they'll be cheating this time, but it'll be from the Duterte side. Um, that, that, makes every, that should make everyone worry. And, uh, and if anyone can figure out how to neutralise, especially tampering with a computer account at the end, they should be really encouraged and helped. But I, I personally, you know, from the distance we are in Australia, I can't understand how, how to do that, except that officials inside the administration who've got any conscience, you know, they're the ones who have to somehow block this sort of really bad manipulation of the people's votes. I would say it's unpredictable. The fact that there's so many even far right-wing candidates, they're not unif- you can tell that that block, even though Marcos is in the lead, that block are not united you know, about how to go forward. You know, there's already some leaks late last year that the military have got a plan called no election, no L, in case it, it all starts to spin out of control. So it's possible even now to say that come late April, if it looks like the sort of hegemony of the US, uh, the crushing of the left and all of that is somehow endangered, then there may well be a military coup and, and no election in the end. <laughs> That's possible too. So you can see how so volatile in the Philippines. Well, from what you've said, if the election does go ahead, is there any point in sending in international observers? Yes, I think uh, any presence of uh, observers who can provide some sense of restraint, uh, second thoughts about doing this or doing that uh, negative action, can only help. You know, the presence of um, somehow, you know, foreigners are seen as to be respected and not themselves attacked in Philippines culture. Um, yeah, so the presence of observers can, can assist. Um, the sense that the international community is watching, even now in you know, the end of February, early March, is important to 
provide some sense of restraint um, on uh, the Duterte government. And I think um, for all of his bluster and, and his very angry words against foreigners, uh, you know, Duterte is, is, is clearly very sensitive about this international observation. Now, I think that, for instance, the, um, the government has uh, declined the idea of inviting the European Union to send an observer mission. That's pretty bad. That fits with you know, Duterte's denunciation of the International Criminal Court, the idea that um, the special rapporteurs might visit the Philippines to investigate anything. He's sort of totally allergic to um, that kind of criticism, but it shows that he understands that kind of observation, monitoring and reporting is, is a, you know, as much as we can, we, we're going to try to have international observers there. And I think uh, at you know, the more traditional level, you know, the United States Democratic Foundation and the Republican Foundation, they will be sending observers. And inside the Philippines, there's a really robust tradition of churches, lawyers and other uh, professional groups supporting uh, observer uh, effort. So there's, it's, that's, that is local people being election observers. They, of course, will really um, see the signals more clearly, understand better what's happening in detail than a foreigner would. But you can see how complementary it would be for there to be an international presence as well as this local observer effort. Well, with the right and the far right, is there a liberal or a left bloc? Yes, I think that uh, it's really important to say to the audience here in Australia that the current vice president, her name, it's a woman called Lenny Robredo, is the uh, main uh, contender against the Marcos campaign. She's um, been really vilified uh, during the six years of the Duterte government, but she's always stood her ground. She's also you know, had to weather the sort of misogyny of um, Duterte. Uh, so she's she's sort of tough and determined and I think widely respected uh, in Philippine society. Whether she's got enough money, can manage to get enough allies with her in all the different regions and, and find a way to try to neutralise any cheating, that, that they're all, you know, unknowns. But I think that uh, she is really in a bit torn, I think, between taking a more radical democratic line than her predecessor like uh, Benigno Aquino III, who, who has since, since his term ended, he died, so he's not around. Um, but uh, he, he was a big disappointment in, in Philippines politics, uh, and that's partly why Duterte had a landslide win in 2016. She needs to be different from that. And to some extent, because of the extremism of Duterte, she is better than that but as it's got close to the election she's sort of backtracked a bit you know so she i think you know and this is definitely traditional politics in the philippines she's gone to the u.s embassy to discuss you know what could the future be like in the philippines and would they support her and this and that and of course they they're going to say to her well you know you have to back us on china you have to maintain your repression on the left that is this uh, grassroots civil society uh, campaign for far, far bigger reforms in economic terms, plus the, re the attacks on the armed rebellion, um, which is, you know, decades and decades long as well. Um, and she's, 
not gone all the way with that, with what the Americans have asked, but I think that she's she's conceded a bit back to them. You have to say, you'd have to say, you know, it would be far far better for the Philippines if if Roberto's campaign could win, but don't expect expect that the mass murder will, will stop, and you know, a more normal rate of killings of people for political or other reasons will continue. But really, under President Duterte, it's really a bloodbath. Probably people in Australia sort of know that, but it's not it's not been reported to us uh, for several years, really, how bad it is. You know, it's very important that the Roberto campaign does win. And I think you can see from everything I've said that even a person like her, from a traditional wealthy family with a lot of experience, she's very vulnerable to, and her campaign is very vulnerable to violent attack. Finally, Peter... May Day coming up, it sort of coincides with the election in May. Are the elections normally held in May? Yes, yeah, so the elections in the Philippines are held every six, every six years for the president and they're always held in May. And there are sort of a midterm every three years. There's another you know, election of half the Senate and members of the Congress are elected. And in this election, it's the congressional and half the Senate as well as the president. And, and there's also local elections and so on. So it's a big deal. May Day in the Philippines, there there's always been a big, big rallies. You know, that will be definitely part of what happens this year. Uh, it's a public holiday, May Day in the Philippines. So, you know, I, I think it's it'd be very unusual if the uh, May Day rally was repressed. I don't think that'll happen, because, especially in the election climate. But uh, again, it's such a volatile place and you always have to be careful and well, really well organised to, to develop these sort of street actions and succeed with them. Can I say, you know, going, just going back a little bit on the alternatives to the right wing, there's always been in this last 20 years or 25 years a section of the election called the party list election um, this was created under the 1987 constitution, so that a certain number of seats are reserved for parties representing the marginalised. That's a fairly broadly um, defined term. There's been a block of um, congressional representatives elected this way who uh, are very good at uncovering corruption, taking, uh, putting forward legislative ideas for uh, land reform, human rights for changes to the workers situation and they are small you know like the congress is hundreds of not sure how many and we're talking about five or six or at the maximum there has been nine so the cheating at the last election was you know impacted on them but i think that their vote will be bigger than ever it means millions of people are voting for these party list uh, candidates from the left yeah i think that uh, we should expect them to suffer attacks and violent incidents during the campaign, but we should expect them to get you know, roughly nine or ten or more elected to have a voice. And because, in, in the, you know, so let's say Marcos is defeated and Robredo wins. Within a week of that, nearly all the members of Congress will declare their loyalty to or support for Robredo. Most of them will have been loyal to Duterte. It's, it's much more, you know, being in Congress is more of an investment and people mostly are expecting an economic return for their time there and therefore they want to be on side with the government and the president appoints the government. So 
you get this weird thing which we, we don't see in Australia happen. Uh, so this block of party list progressive uh, members, they don't do that. They stick to their something that's sort of more normal in our Australian politics. You know, we should be able to hear their voice. And hopefully if their vote goes up and there's more of them, that will have a moral impact in the in the Congress. Sometimes they can really win a vote or two, even though they only start out with their, you know, six, seven, eight, nine votes, um, because they're principled, persuasive, rational, and not corrupt. They they come from the trade unions, from the farmers' organisations, and there's specifically from the women's party, and also the teachers have a party and have had people elected in the, in this current Congress. Yeah, we should watch them and support them. Okay, we'll talk again, Peter. Okay, thank you for this, Jan. Trade union and human rights activist Peter Murphy, and we'll be talking to Peter soon about elections in East Timor and Zimbabwe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.